Hey. 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 You are listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com. First John chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to look through this chapter like we've looked through it uh, this last week and, and just take it apart piece by piece. It just kind of comes to light to us in such a great way when we do that. We're looking at how we are God's treasured. When we're talking about the real love of God, that we are his treasure. John wants us to know that as he's writing to us. But what makes a treasure a treasure? Well, a treasure, as I'm finding out, is different in different people's eyes. What I think is valuable to me is worthless to you. And what you hold to be so dear and so precious, I just go, that needs to go by the street. And we have this different kind of picture of what looks different in regards to treasure, don't we? Because the person makes it valuable. The person makes it valuable. And if God sees us as his treasure, it's the person who makes you and I valuable. The word treasure in Greek actually is a word that's closely related to the word thesaurus. Those of you that understand thesaurus, it is a way to be able to explore all the possibilities of a word and you want to find all the words that surround it and look like it. It allows it to to bring new life to you. Now I want you to know that in the same way, everything that really needs to, that you need to be known or said is rooted in Christ Jesus today. The treasure is hidden in him. And the way to have that treasure is to have the person. And God sees you as treasured. We, we sing a song. Oftentimes I have several songs I'm probably going to pop off and sing every once in a while just because it's hard for me to read them and not sing them. But we sing this song, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond measure, that he should give his only son, here's the words for us, to make a wretch his treasure. To make a wretch his treasure. Now, I have folks that want me to talk to you more and tell you like how wretched you really are. How awful you really are. Like you don't give us enough of how bad we are. I want you to know, I believe you and I do a fine job at referring to ourselves as wretches. You don't need me to help you with it. I think we claim ourselves as wretches way more often than we need to be told that we are. Now there's some folks that need to be told. But I don't know that it's all of you. In fact, I think some of you think you are Two wretched sometimes even belong. But listen to the rest of this verse. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. A wretched treasure brought to glory. This is what John's going to get to us today. And I believe that today in this passage we're looking at a message on our identity. On who you and I are in God's eyes. And we quickly move ourselves kind of closer to that and further away from that, all at the same time. God's treasures are not found in a bank or in a safety deposit box or in bricks or in mortar or how many friends like you today. 
His real treasure is you. His real treasure is you. And you and I are walking treasures, jewels set apart for him. And before we go any further, I just want to pray that you might hear this. So if you'd just bow your heads quickly and we'll pray. Lord, I'm praying, God, that you would change us from who we think we are to who we really are. And I pray, God, that I might get out of the way of whatever it is you're going to do. And and I just want to be your voice today. And I pray, God, that all of us are changed because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's open up this text. We're in 1 John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at this sometimes a little time, time, sometimes in little sets. I'm going to look at the first three verses in a set, if we can. And we're going to find out what are treasured. What are the treasured? Look at first three verses. It says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I have an exclamation point after both of those sentences. I don't know about you. I think God wants us to know you are called children of God and that is what you are. Exclamation point. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's take a look at what are the treasured. The first part of the what are the treasured found in verse 1, lavished upon us. Lavished love upon us. Try to find a good definition for lavished, and you get a lot of kind of mixed reviews. All I know is it's way more than all of us can stand. Now, again, for me, I learned this verse, chapter 3, verse 1, at camp, in a song. It goes like this. Some of you know it this way. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we may be called the sons of God. That we may be called the sons of God. That's amazing to me. Lavished is this word that's so hard to put my head around. He wants to lavish you with so much love. The only way that we can get a good definition for it for me is what you'll see probably in the game, uh, regardless of who you're voting for or whether or not you care about the game or not, somebody's going to get a Gatorade dumped on top of them. And they're not expecting it, and we got to camera that, and we got to show it an instant replay as though we didn't capture it the first time. Did you see that? They almost got him. And we talk about the, it has nothing to do with the game, but we have to dump this on him. This is, this is the lavish part of God. God is looking for you to just dump on you this incredible amount of love. And when he does, there is no way that you could ever capture it all and say, I want to give it back to you. It's already been dumped on you. And we'll try to wring things out and and take off the sticky part and give it to somebody else. We can't. It's already been dumped on you. And that's the lavishness part of God. And again, I love that part. And also in the same verse, the treasured people are recognized by God and not by the world. John notes that while unbelievers do not know, believers do know, and unbelievers do not know Christ. And as, as it refers to, it's a sense of intimacy. It's more than just knowing who he is. It's a sense of intimacy. It's a place of fellowship. It's a place of connection. You and I know God. 
And the unbelieving world doesn't have a relationship with Christ, therefore it has no relationship with his children. So we're recognized by God in the world. You ever recognize somebody in a crowd, spot somebody in a crowd? There's this moment like airport, mall, a crowded theater, wherever you're at, you want to find somebody and everybody's like, you can't find them, it's just too crowded. How are you gonna go about finding them? I don't know. There's just recognizable things about each other. Maybe they always wear a hat. Maybe they're you know, really tall, really short. Uh, maybe they have good looks and great hair like me and you're able to spot them in a crowd. But the reality is when you find them, it's like you shift through all the other, all the other faces and go, I found him. I see him over there. This is God's recognition of you and me. In the middle of a crowd, in the middle of the world, he spots us because of his lavish love on us and he spots us. In verse two, we find out that the treasure are clearly seen by God. We don't have this complicated picture yet because God has not shown us all of what Jesus has for us. And so until we see him, until we see him face to face, we're just getting a glimpse of what we think is really great about him. Until, and, and until then, we have this dimly lit view of who God really is. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says it this way. For now we see only a reflection, a, a reflect, a reflection in a mirror. And then we shall see him face to face. And now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Clearly seen by God. And when you see Jesus face to face, you'll see him as he is. The exact expression of God's glory. And finally, you'll understand everything it means to say, I am a child of God. Song we just sang. Who the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. There's confidence in that. Clearly seen by God, but also in verse 3, we find out that the treasure are made pure. The process involving purity for gold relies on you heating the gold to a temperature of a slight but warm 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit. The gold first starts to turn red, and then it starts to melt. And when the gold is totally molten, it's, it's spun really fast. And as it spins, all these sparks fly out of it. And all that's flying out of it is this thing called dross. Dross is defined as the mass of solid impurities floating on molten metal, and the dross has no value. And get this, it's often referred to as scum. Interesting. Wretched. Dross. Scum. The dross has to be removed so the metal can be pure. And as I continue to grow and walk with the Lord, I don't know about you, but I, I realize that he's up to something in me. And when I see that he's up to something in me and he starts to purify the parts of my life that I just can't get a handle on, quite frankly, I have to go in the furnace. I don't want to go in the furnace. Like, that's just awfully hot there. And then a part of what I had on me has to get removed. And it comes off. But the results on the other side, so cool. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 and 13 says it this way. If anyone builds on the foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or wood or hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light and it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. 
Whenever you're under the fire, try not to complain. Try not to complain. I don't want to be there either. But on the other side, there's a moment when the sparks are flying, like, what's going on? And when it cools down, purity happens. Purity is freedom from all the contaminants. Purity is the quality of being faultless and uncompromised and unadulterated. Pure water, man, give me a, a glass of water. I want to drink that down right now. But you give me this dirty bottle of water that I can see. I'm like, ay. You know, and you look at it and you, well, let me so that it settle a little bit and make all the crud will go to the bottom. I'll drink the top part, right? I'm that kind of guy. Like some people are like, I'm not touching that. I'm like, well, maybe we'll let it all settle down. I'll drink just the top part. Pure gold has to be refined to a degree that all the dross has to be removed. And a pure life is no different. When sin is no longer there that determines the choices that we make, man, there is purity. Let's go on and find out how are the treasure recognized. How are the treasured recognized? And we see it in verses 4 through 10. We'll stop and look at each of these verses a little time. So verse 4 says, everyone who, sin, I'm sorry, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. This is how we're, we, we, as the treasure, how they're recognized. We recognize ourselves as sinners. And there's this moment that, that you can't stop saying that. Like, you, I mean, I, I know I'm a forgiven sinner, but I haven't stopped sinning. I still mess up and I still blow it. Even though I'm attempting to make better improvements, I still need to identify myself as a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace still today. I could say I was a sinner that was saved by grace. No, I'm still a sinner that's saved by grace. Why? Because I'm gonna need his grace tomorrow. I wish I were perfect after I made a decision after follow Jesus, but I'm not. And so I'm going to sin, and I have to recognize that. You have to recognize that. How else do we do that? We, we find that removal of sin is done by Jesus alone. Look at it in verse 5. Verse 5 says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. I say that removal of sin is done by Jesus alone. I can say it's done by Jesus, but I like adding alone, because here's what happens. I think you and I are trying to keep ourselves to remove the sin, like we're going to take away the dross in our life on our own without a little fire. I think I got this. I think I know what I need to change. I think I know what I need to do. I have enough self-awareness that I could take care of that. Jesus had a purpose for coming, and he had a purpose in coming not to just make us better. His mission was to remove the power of sin from our lives. And Jesus did so by paying, the pros, by, by paying the price of our evil actions on the cross for us. And Christ's sacrifice is the only one sufficient to pay the price for every sin once and for all. In verse 6, we find out that sin starts to become inconsistent in your life. And that's how you can be recognized. Verse 6. It says that no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. It becomes in, it, inconsistent. Am, am, am I going to say that, that it's all solved? I'll never go back? The believer sees a decreasing pattern of sin in their life. Now, I know that some of you still believe that you're a wretch and that you still can't stop doing, just like Paul, that thing you want to stop doing but you can't stop doing. The reality is, is that you're better than you used to be. You're a lot better than you used to be. In fact, if you were to score it and mark it down, when was the last time you did that thing? If you could calendar it, if you could document it. It's not like you're doing it as often as you were doing it before. You need to recognize that sin helps it so that, that you become inconsistent in the sinning part of your life. And John's not referring to sinless perfection. He understands that we're going to continue to sin. Simply he means that believers will not continue to practice sin as a way of life. 
And there'll be a difference between the old life without Christ and the new life in Christ. Your patterns have changed. And the child of God, who was a former thief, may still struggle with covetousness. But he no longer lives according to the pattern of stealing. The child who was a former adulterer may still struggle with lust, but is broken free from the old life of immorality. We hear about a verse that I want to share with you from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I want you to know in three days, I'm going to give it to the guys inside in my letters. This verse is on every one of the letters that I've written because I believe it's the same on the inside as it is on the outside. So you're hearing what they're hearing. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then we get to verse 2, which we need to capitalize. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Why do I share this verse with you and with them? Because our minds keep us in the spot that we don't want to be in. Everything else is transformed about us. We know who we are in Christ Jesus, but it's our head that says, I'm still a ratchet old sinner. And you have to transfer that mind moment and say, no longer am I that way. Jesus doesn't see me that way. Verse seven and eight talk about how we change it into actions in our text today. It says, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does not, he who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Yeah, I'm so grateful that he came to do that because our actions then reflect who we follow. Your actions change and, and you find out who's most important to you. The one who has Christ living in them changes their actions because Christ came to destroy the works of the devil and these satanic works no longer have an expression in our hearts anymore. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil and that guarantees your sanctification. The actions demonstrated who will follow. And this new relationship with Jesus spurs you to act more like Jesus every day. And biblical love then turns into self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself, seeking the highest good of the loved ones. And at the heart, biblical love is a commitment and is not without feeling. It's a caring commitment and it works biblically and it's our duty to do so. We have a brother inside, outside, who goes inside with this. His name is Daniel Hansen. And Daniel Hansen is about as fiery, charismatic, Pentecostal guy as I've ever met. But he is a joy to be around. He influences every one of us whenever he comes up to talk because he starts to do a little dance and starts running through the aisle. He'll go down that one and come out that door still praising God. But this is what he says to us, and I love when he says it. Don't be stingy with my Jesus. Don't be stingy with my Jesus. You and I sometimes hold on to Jesus and think it just belongs to you. Where is that written? Don't be stingy with my Jesus. He's too good to you. You need to share that Jesus with as many people as you can get with. But then we find in verse 9 that we're, our nature doesn't want us to sin anymore. Look at verse 9 in our text today. Verse 9 says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been Born of God. His nature has been changed with what Christ Jesus. Christ has forgiven us 
And now we experience a heart change and forgiveness is not cheap and we know that because it costs God everything to offer us the cleansing we now have. And so rather than continue in the self-centered path that leads us to astray, we begin to understand his forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, we walk in God's path. You can't experience the awesome power of righteousness without being forever changed. How are you gonna do that? Ephesians chapter six helps us with that. I'd love to get to this whole text, but I'm just gonna read a section of it. Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 13. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, and it will come, that you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand." man, I need to be able to stand because my nature doesn't want to sin anymore, but I know I can't do it by myself, so I'm gonna have to put on the whole armor of God and take a stand. And then the last piece of this part of our text today, in verse 10, it says this, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the evil one are. Anyone who does what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So it's not just about knowing about God, it's knowing God to believe and to love and to trust God. This knowledge makes you want to live a life that pleases God and you trust that your life will be better and more meaningful to be led by God and it happens when you faithfully live in the ways that he's taught you and I how to live by keeping his commandments. Worldly people, who love and trust in worldly things above all else, they won't follow these teachings because they don't experience real motivation to do so. And according to John, this shows on how we know God. Let's move on though. In our text, it says how how the treasured loved God. How do the treasured love God? This is how we love God, how we can experience that. Look in verse 11. Verse 11 says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. We should love God one another. Why? Because love has changed everything. The cross and his love has changed everything. One woman wrote, I got a a Valentine letter for you. It's this week, so I've got a Valentine letter for you. One woman wrote it this way. Dearest Ben, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please, please say that you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you, Betty. Then she put a P.S. And congratulations for winning the state lottery. (laughs) Yeah. There's sometimes this little piece of what I want to get from somebody else when I love. What's going to be in it for me if I do so? But when love has changed everything for us, we understand that love is self-sacrificing, it's caring, it's commitment, it shows itself in wanting the best for others, it acts. And God sent his son Jesus to take on human form and live among us, being fully God and fully man. And he faced the scariest things that we could ever face as humans. He faced death, he chose it. 
And he did so because of his love. Love changes everything. Can I just say this in a, in a, in a, in a, main, a means of, of being able just to announce it? A uh, couple of thousand dozen cookies have come in, more than what we needed. It's going to be fine by the time we get there on Thursday. More than enough money came in. Uh, I can't believe how many prayer rings there are. That room's going to get so filled. I want you to know they'll touch them and they'll read them and they'll look at them. They can't read them all, but there'll be one hanging right up over where they're sitting. And they'll look and see that somebody signed their name Matthew and it'll remind them of their kid and they'll think that thing was put there for them. And I'll say, yeah, it was. It was put there for you. I want you to know that's come in. Down on the landing, 137 or so bags of soup are gonna go out this afternoon. Man, I just wanna tell you, if you're not taking the soup, in the hour after, right after worship is done, would you pray that the love of Christ would be shown and demonstrated in the soup that's handed out? Does anybody really need soup? I don't know. But boy, a conversation, a smile, a blessing in some way, would you pray about what God's gonna do in that interactive moment um, as people pass it out? Love changes everything. Look at verses 12 and 13. It tells us the one thing not to do in 12 and 13. It says, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. And I would say, don't be Cain. But face it, some people are really hard to love. I can only imagine how hard it would have been to love Cain. But Cain gave us an example of the opposite of what he's talking about. The opposite of loving one another is being like Cain. And in Genesis chapter 4, we learn that Cain was angry because God didn't accept his offering, whereas his brother Abel's was, was accepted. And in his anger, Cain planned and carried out the murder of his brother. You know, there's two reasons you want to give to God. Here's the reasons. One is out of gratitude for his grace, and the other one is to try to earn his grace. And Cain was trying to earn God's grace with his gift, and it just didn't work out. And so his response was furious at God and at Abel, and, and he didn't want any part of what God was doing, and so he killed his own brother. And I want you to know that you and I, when we look at the New Testament, in our heart, sometimes in our anger and our rage, Jesus would say, we killed somebody. And Cain hated, it, hated and killed, but true love, John says, means giving up life, not taking it. True love dies, it doesn't kill. So don't be Cain. But then we find in that hatred that Cain had in verses 14 and 15 that it leads to spiritual decay. It did in Cain, it's gonna do so for us. It says in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. That's tough text right there. Because we got to be careful about that word hate in our life. Hate's going to cause spiritual decay in our life. It's not going to work out for bringing life. And maybe you can identify maybe with the rival between Winston Churchill and Lady Astor. Uh, they had some mean, cruel words that they said. And we live in a world right now where there's some mean, cruel words. But Lady Astor and Winston Churchill didn't go so good sometimes. Lady Astor said one time, if I were your wife, this is to Winston Churchill, if I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your beer. Churchill replied quickly as he only could, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> On another occasion, Lady Astor glared at Prime Minister Churchill and said, sir, you are quite drunk. And Churchill replied, madam, I may be quite drunk. However, you are quite ugly and I will be sober in the morning. Mm. 
Man, that's some tough language right there. That's some tough, yeah, you're going, I'm going to write that one down. You're like, (laughs) stop it, stop it. You don't need any help. Hatred leads to spiritual decay. There's no way those two ever really got along because there was decay between them. And no doubt many of the early Christians were being persecuted and abandoned, discriminated against because of their faith in Christ Jesus. And I know that some of you have been in the same boat. You've tried time and time again to talk to somebody about Christ Jesus, and they have slammed the door in your face. And you didn't get a chance to get your fingers out of the way. They don't care, and they don't want. And that fellowship makes us at odds. And John's telling us we're not going to be loved by the world. Belonging to Jesus means you're no longer of the world, and you may be in the world, but no longer of the world, and that means that you'll ever be at odds with the world. In John's gospel, he wrote it this way. In chapter 15, Jesus said in verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. And if you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, I have chosen you out of it, and the world hates you. And remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Then we find out in verse 16, probably the coolest moment. I mean, we've been talking about the love of Christ and what he's done on the cross, but we're going to actually hear it in verse 16 which I would challenge you to go ahead and get your communion together because we want to remember this piece of great love that God has lavished on us. Verse 16 says it this way as you gather your communion. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brother. And so we know that Jesus is the model. And if you want a portrait of love, look to the life of Jesus. He illustrated love by the life that he lived. He never showed hatred or malice. He, he only got angry over injustice, but that was motivated by his love for his people. He went out of his way to help those of his fellows, fellow Jews despised. He crossed racial and cultural and geographical barriers to care for people. He reached out to the unlovely and the castaways of the world. But the ultimate expression of his love was when he went to the cross, sacrificing his life for ours. And I, for one, I didn't earn it. And I don't deserve it. But if I go back to verse one, he's dumped Gator on eight on me anyway. And I'm dripping with the love of Christ Jesus when I don't deserve the victory. And it's though Jesus has asked us, how much do I love you all? All of you. And he said, I love you this much. And he died for us. It's what we come remembering. Let's bow our heads as we remember that. Lord God, we come before you thanking you again for a plan that you had well before any of us could were even here. You knew that we'd come and that we'd fail and we'd make mistakes along the way and that we would need to be made righteous not by anything that we've done, only by purification of who we are. And the only way that we could be purified 
be made righteous was because of a Savior who's never sinned, who died in our place and took the cross on our behalf, paid the cost, totally forgiving what it is we've done. That's an amazing piece. We thank you one more time for treasuring us as your children, for coming to sacrifice your life for ours. And we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, church family, at the body of Christ, would you take this bread, eating it, remembering, again, his body. And would you take the cup and drink it, remembering again his sacrifice as you drink and remember him. So verse 16 tells us that Jesus is the model. Verse 17 and 18 lets us know that we need to model Jesus. Look at verse 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but he has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. We become the models that Jesus was to us. In the movie, The Black Hawk Down, I don't know how many know that story, but it retells the dramatic story of a small group of army rangers who flew into a small town in Somalia to capture a warlord who was stealing American food shipments from the starving Somalian citizens. And one of the young men whose life was changed by this brutal battle was Sergeant Jeff Struker, who serves as an army chaplain. Sergeant Struker claims that as the bullets whizzed past his head and grenades were exploded all around him, that God called him into ministry. As he said it this way, he said, in the middle of the firefight, I had to decide whether I believed what I say I believe. And when I finally answered that question, my faith became so strong that it gave me the strength to fight the rest of the night. And it's from that spot, in the middle of our firefights, which we will have, we'll all have to decide whether or not we stand or we don't. Whether or not we believe and we don't, and it's ultimately up to us to choose what we're going to do. In the middle of the fight, you have to decide what you believe and choose that identity that Jesus gives you, that he loves you as his treasured. That real Christian love is expressed in the daily way you serve and help other people around you. That's what John, or yeah, that's what Sergeant Jeff Struker now gets to do with his life. He's now not just fighting the battle, he's fighting the spiritual battle with his brothers and sisters who he gets to serve with. John lets us know that Christian love is personal. John does an interesting kind of thing. He speaks of brothers and sisters, plural, in verse 16 that we just read. But he makes a deliberate, significant change in verse 17 when he speaks of a brother or a sister, singular. He knew that what we would often say today, it's easier to love mankind than it is to love that guy or that girl that's complicated and difficult in my life. It's easier to love the whole world than it is to sometimes love my neighbors. It's easier to love the church than to love that person sitting across the aisle. Why are they here today? G.P. Lewis wrote it this way, and I love this quote. It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Those are tough words. 
What about you? I know there's some people in your life that are difficult in your life, and you would rather hug a, a porcupine than, than love the people that you have that are difficult. And we all have people in our lives like that. But what do you do? You love them anyway. If you have the ability and see a need, you meet it. You forgive <laughs> when they hurt you. You do good to them. You bless them. You pray for them. You help them. John went on to say that Christian love is practical, and John contrasts words versus actions. To love in words means to talk about a need, but to love in action means to do something about meeting that need. Christian love doesn't just say, I love you, but it gets your hands dirty, it gets your feet dusty, it gets your heart engaged, it gets uncomfortable. Jesus is the model, and John lets us know that we're the ones to model it. Then as we close with this text, we find out what happens to the treasured and the children's prayers. Our treasured children's prayers start to change. In verse 19, we start to see that. Verses 19 through 24, it says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we are set our hearts in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, we know everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before you. Here's the confidence you have. Confidence rests in loving. There are areas where you're assured of confidence, and confidence helps you to know who he is. And this is the assurance of love, the life that brings to you. God is greater than your fears, greater than your doubts, and it's all based on how you feel. But your faith in the Son of God is the one who gave himself up for you, and your salvation is certain. But look at verse 22. It says that God answers. It says, and this is his command, to believe, I'm sorry, and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what he pleases. Confidence is when we're heard. Who doesn't just need to be heard sometimes? And John says, because your salvation is fixed, because it's dependent on him, you're born again and you're walking in fellowship with him and that changes how you know your, your prayers are gonna be answered. And so he calls us to be obedient to what he wants us to do. And when we're obedient to it, we can be assured that we're gonna get answers. They may not always be the ones we want, but we'll get answers. John 14, 13 says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, and the Father will be glorified in the Son. And we see this moment whenever it's kind of conditional because of the word because that we see in the sentence. We have confidence that he'll answer our prayers because of one condition, our obedience to him. Then we find in verses 23 and 24 the assurance that we are his treasure. Look at it with me. It says, this is his command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he's loved us. And those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. See, you're not going to be able to do this all on your own. This loving thing, this dumping Gatorade thing, you're not going to be able to do it on, on your own. It's going to be the Holy Spirit working in you. And when you do, you're going to be reminded that God paid the highest price, price possible for you, that he gave his life sacrificially for you. He's a father who's already done what's necessary and the love of God is flowing out of him and that helps us to be overcomers. Well, as one more story, we close with this idea. There was a rock hound that was named Rob Cutshaw. He was a guy who looked for stones. A little roadside shop in Andrews, North Carolina. And like many in the trade, he hunted for rocks and then he sold, sold them to collectors for jewelers or for jewelry makers. He knows enough about rocks to decide which rock to pick up and sell, but he's no expert. He leaves the appraising of the rocks to other people. 
And as much as he enjoys the work, it, always pays the, it doesn't always pay the bills. So occasionally he moonlights, cutting wood, help provide bread for the table. But when he was on a dig 20 years ago, Rob found a rock he described as purdy and big. He tried unsuccessfully to sell the specimen, so he kept the rock in his closet, stored it away. He guessed the blue chunk would bring somewhere in, in the means of $500, but he'd take less if somebody, something urgent came up like paying a power bill or whatever. That's how close Rob came to hawking for a few hundred dollars what turned out to be the largest, most valuable sapphire ever found. The blue rock that Rob had abandoned to the darkness of a closet two decades ago, now known as the Star of David Sapphire, weighs nearly a pound and could easily sell for $2.75 million. You have no idea how priceless you are until you're dug up from the dirt cleaned up a bit by the one who values you and loves you and says you're worth way more than being placed in the ground or stuck in a closet. And sometimes we place our lives in a closet and we allow ourselves to be stuck in the mud. But I want you to know a savior has come and he's redeemed us and he's called us his treasure. And as he digs us up and he washes us off, he makes you and me a treasure only because of Christ Jesus. I want you to know the words that I share a lot of times here that I've done in youth ministry for years. And then I've got lots of you to caught up in saying, I've written on every one of the letters that I'm gonna write in on Thursday. Because this Thursday, I'm going to prison. And I can't wait to get there because I know these men like you need to hear this. You are a treasured child of the most high God. And the deal is, I don't need to tell you that. I think you believe it. But I think it takes like 50 seconds before you start to believe you're not. You believe you're still wretched and that you don't belong and you don't feel like you should be cleaned up. But I want you to know you're worth it and that you're valuable. And it's time to get your life out of the closet and get it cleaned up and put it on display and allow it to be seen by other people. That's who you are. And so I know you can be cleaned up. Our baptistry's ready. A new life can happen. A new, a new walk can happen because of the cleansing only Jesus can provide. And so one more time, we'll offer that. We'll offer an opportunity for the family to be enlarged by saying yes to, to, to a place of membership with us, to say, I wanna be here, this is my family. I don't know why I've held on so long. We're gonna say yes to him because we are his sons and daughters. Let's stand and let's sing, I'll be right here to receive you today. Thank you for listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com. 